Hello, everyone, and welcome to One Control Port Podcast, episode 291. My name is Benjamin Yoder, and I'm here today on the new channel. Just as a reminder, I mean, if you're listening to this on YouTube, you probably already found me. But uh, the the podcast uh, episodes are going to be going up on One Control Port Plus going forward. So here's the start to a new day on a new channel where we do the same podcast. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I know I know it's maybe sounds a little overwhelming to launch like three new channels basically all at once. Again, the PCFX one was kind of just a side effect of of thinking about stuff separately from this and it all kind of lining up but um but yeah I'm hoping things will will become more clear as things kind of go on uh you're definitely going to see more uploads to the one control port plus channel over everything else I will say so um if you're interested in uh you know the commentary stuff that I do I hope you're here in here for the for the for the long term um, most of this year, uh, or blah, 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 let me, let me roll that back. Not most of this year. Um, the first quarter of this year, uh, is going to be very like podcast highlight heavy, probably at the very least. I have a lot of those uh, scheduled out. I also went and got the community reviews all edited and things like that too. So stuff that had been kind of, you know, lingering from not getting uploaded to the other channel. Cause I didn't really want to focus on it there. Um, minus the blue one because just the timing and everything like that. But all that kind of stuff is going to be going up on this channel along with any kind of like stream clips, stream highlights, things like that. So quick reminder on that. Again, there's a whole video where I kind of go over that though. Um, so I'll go ahead and, uh, link that, um, here, right here, right now, hopefully, hopefully I remember to do that. If not, I'll throw it in the description at the very least. So of the YouTube again, if you're listening to the podcast platform though, uh, on podcast platforms though, um, no change. You are here. Welcome to stay in your seat. Stay sit. Please stay st- seated. There's turbulence in the YouTube channel, but it's not affecting you still, but still safety first, first and foremost. So, um, in terms of what's actually coming up in terms of larger project stuff though, I know I've been, you know, very quiet because of all this like podcast shuffling stuff or, or, or YouTube shuffling stuff. Uh, the Babylon video script still coming along. I got kind of like to the second phase of it. Um, where I basically have the core, uh, structure and everything down and everything I mostly want to say is on the paper. I made a couple of changes today. Uh, just some things I had thought about after I kind of wrapped up the final first draft, I guess you could call it the very first, first draft, just, you know, there's always like a first, first draft. That's always not so great, (laughs) but, um, I thankfully was able to clean it up pretty quickly. So, um, clean it up in terms of, we made another draft kind of thing. So I think at this point it's going to be actually honing in the words, honing in how I say things, all that kind of stuff. Um, I did cut a couple of parts out of the video just cause I just didn't feel like it fit fit very well. I'm not going to talk about Babylon's story very much in there. Um, and then also I had a section that talked about like Square Enix and how they handle their live service games. And I felt like it's something probably worth talking about. And maybe I'll mention it in some way, but you know, I think at the reality in the day is that it was a little bit too much of a detour to even really matter, uh, that much. So I just kind of put that to the side They're to the side for now, at least, I guess. But I, I, I suspect those two parts won't make it into the final video for that. So. And then PCFX stuff is coming up here in the next couple weeks as, uh, as well here. So look forward to that. That's going to be the PCFX podcast episode zero. Got to get all that stuff, uh, you know, t- 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 eyes dotted and slash your T's. What is that the saying? Yep, definitely is. This podcast, though, what are we talking about on this podcast, though? Um, we're going to talk a little about we're going to talk about my impressions of Kirby Tilt and Tumble or I guess my review of Kirby Tilt and Tumble. 
um, because I finished that. Um, we have our Patreon discussion per usual, and then uh, I think we're gonna go over some uh, 2023 releases and just kind of talk about you know what I'm looking forward to for the year. Um, some of these were news stories for last week, but, uh, because they're kind of focused around release dates and stuff, or at least, you know, release style stuff, I kind of wrapped it in here as well. And it goes up until, uh, probably about like, you know, uh, I think June is like the latest game we have on this list. So, you know, the first half of 2023, talk about what I'm interested in, in terms of new releases. Um, that doesn't, that does not mean I guarantee I will play these video games, but you know, you at least get to hear what I'm interested in, in regards to those. So Anyways, though, first and foremost, Kirby Tilt and Tumble. This is a 2000s kind of um, Game Boy Color Kirby game, uh, which is, I think, pretty well known, honestly. I think it made a big impact on a lot of, I don't know if kids at the time specifically would be the right word, but, you know, it made a lot of impact because it was a game that used, like, a motion detector. And it, as a Game Boy Color game, you know, how it does this is in the actual Game Boy Color cartridge kind of thing. Um, I played this on stream using a GameCube, um, which is not necessarily the best way to do this. <laughs> um, I'll get a bit more detail about the struggles of that, but I did come come back to it um, using the Game Boy Color and finish the game using the Game Boy Color. So I do have experience playing this game in a more intended situation <laughs> and then also in a I need to capture footage for this game kind of thing. So unfortunately, it's one of those things where like all the footage I have of this game is like now just like this awkward kind of, you know, play style. So I just got to let you know a lot of times. I think uh, uh, there's a review I did for um, Wizard of Oz that played using an emulator, emulating the touchscreen. I had to like make a note in there because like there's weird things. I'm like walking into walls and things like that. Because using a, a mouse pointer is not as easy as like a stylus. Um, but I ended up playing the Japanese version of this game, and it, it wasn't really a big deal. The big reason I went with it, because it was cheaper, um, but it didn't really get in the way too much, other than so there's some tutorial signs in the game where it kind of, you know, it tells you what to do, and you just gotta kind of guess, but there's so few buttons and options with the Game Boy Color, that for the most part, you can kind of figure out what you need to do in most situations, even without the English on the screen for that. So, um, but if you don't know what this is, it's a pretty simple concept overall, um, and, and because of that, it's it's a pretty simple game in a lot of ways, but I think they do a lot with it to make it feel diverse. Um, so basically, it, the idea behind this game is that you have Kirby, and he's not actually a ball, like, it's not like Kirby in the canvas curse where he's actually literally a ball, he just is kind of rolled up a little bit, and you kind of tilt the Game Boy Color around, and he rolls around on the screen. It's not like a side-scrolling adventure like a Kirby canvas curse or other Kirby games, it is a top-down perspective, so you're rolling Kirby in all different directions and then like flicking the Game Boy Color up will cause like Kirby to jump and things like that so the intention that they seem to be you know uh uh, uh you know th what they wanted to mimic I guess is Kirby kind of rolling around on your screen there's like a lot of promotional graphics of Kirby rolling around on the Game Boy Color screen and things like that it seems like that's what they're trying to basically emulate and so the majority of the game itself like the core foundation of this game really is about kind of navigating Kirby around a variety of death pits which like, you could say that about a lot of platformers really if you really boil it down to um but that's really the biggest uh like threat in this game is falling into an instant death pit and and because you know you don't have direct control over kirby it's just kind of like leaning him around and kind of like using the you know, physics to kind of push them around the screen and things like that. Um, it is, I think, a bigger challenge of this game. Um, but it is something that I think can be a little touchy at times when you're moving Kirby around. It can get a little frustrating, um, and it can be hard to track, like, where the center of balance of the screen is 
because when you have Kirby, like when you start the game, you have to like hold the the system and press the A button to kind of like set it. And I'm not sure if it like gets desynced at times or what, but sometimes like after I've played for a while, it feels like if I put the Game Boy Color down, like Kirby doesn't sit perfectly flat anymore. He like kind of tilts around a little bit. Tilt and tumble. That's the name of this game. <laughs> I was like, I thought I was about to say a Pac-Man, pack and roll, but no, it's Kirby Tilt and Tumble. Um, that kind of thing. So, uh, it, 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 it can get like really hard though when you like your the game asks you for like quicker movements because Kirby you can't really like stop on a dime or something like that. Again, it's kind of like hands off control of Kirby. Um, and on a Game Boy Color, this is something that's just kind of challenging. But on the GameCube, it's almost impossible to like go and like keep these perfectly straight lines through certain things while you're moving fast and then stop on a dime and things like that. So if you plan to play this game with the GameCube, you're really gonna have a lot of challenge trouble. And I feel like later in the game, especially. Um, it's going to be challenging, but you know, that's not how the game was intended to be played. This game kind of has two different ways you can play it in the modern day, at least using an actual Game Boy Color cart. Um, one is, or I guess official ways, one is using a Game Boy Color itself. Um, and then that's what I used was just using Game Boy Color directly. And then you can use the original Game Boy Advance. And the original GBA works because the cartridge uh, positioning is the same as the cartridge positioning of a... Um, of the Game Boy Color. But if you play it using a Game Boy Advance SP, the cartridge gets flipped upside down and the SP wasn't like a thing at this time. So, you know, it is something that you can't like flip uh, in the game to like change like the direction it's 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 facing. So you have to play this on either original Game Boy Color, original GBA SP, or a platform that emulates that like an analog or something like that, right? Analog, portable, I forget what it's called. Um, but the challenges with the Game Boy Color and the Game Boy Advance um, the uh, stock model is that um, when you tilt the screen around, like these systems do not have any kind of like backlit screen by default. At least you can mod them in and stuff like that. Um, but by default, if you're playing a stock one like I am, you know when you're tilting the screen around, it can be really hard to uh, keep the the play field in view. And then depending on the lighting situation you're in, it also can play an impact on like how visible the screen is at times. Um, and so I definitely ran into that challenge. I, I have like a desk light that I use for um, for lighting myself during streams. So I had that kind of over the thing. And, you know, if I tilted really far forward, I often would lose the ability to, to look at the screen. So, you know, obviously I don't really know what's happening. So I really think if you are going to play this game without some kind of backlit back back screen, you need to be able to, um, you know, rein in your tilting a bit more and make sure that screen always stays like within view and within your sweet spot. And that does mean you'll move a little bit slower than, you know, going full force forward or something like that. And it is hard to like keep those limitations in mind when you're moving a Game Boy around in real time and you're like panicking while stuff is happening. Um, but it is something that I think you really have to keep in mind with this game if you're going to play on original hardware. If you're playing with like a bat like screen or like an analog uh, uh, portable or something like that. I don't think that'll be as big of an issue, but for Game Boy Color, it's definitely not the most ideal way to play the game, but you know, that's what the game was built around. So I guess it's maybe the most authentic way to play the game kind of thing. Um, aside from like dodging death pits and things like that though, uh, enemies are in this game as you might expect, but it, it, it doesn't feel very much like a Kirby game in terms of how you deal with those enemies. You're not like rolling into them very much and killing them that way. You don't get pick up like power ups or anything like that for the most part and like hit them with those. Instead, it's really, really simple. All you do is flip the Game Boy and that kills most of the enemies in the game. There's some exceptions. There's some timing on certain enemies you have to do. But for the most part, it's just flip the Game Boy 
or like flip, flip or flick the Game Boy up, and then it will cause Kirby to jump, and then kind of big, cause all of them to die or something like that. And it creates this really like interesting, different kind of risk versus reward in some ways, because it's not just about like you know, oh, I can dodge this enemy and just try not to get hit kind of thing. There's a risk that comes with flipping the Game Boy because Kirby jumps in the air, and when you're doing this flick, depending on how you're flicking. Um, at least in my situation, I found Kirby tends to veer in different directions depending on, you know, how you're flicking it, basically. And so when you're on a small platform, you have this risk of this enemy in front of you that can push you off. But then you also have the risk of, well, I want to kill this enemy. I'm going to flip him in the air. But then when I flip him, I might actually throw myself off the ledge instead. So it's kind of an interesting way to deal with enemies. And I feel like there's not that many enemies in the game, probably for the reason that it was kind of challenging. And again, when you're flipping that Game Boy up, you know, without the backlit screen and just the fact that it's sheerly, you know, moving quickly, um, you know, it's a little hard to keep track of like where you're jumping and where you're landing. And Kirby doesn't like slow down in the air at all. It is a very quick up, down, up, down kind of thing um but i think it's a it's it, it's fairly easy to ignore most of them um when 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 they're on the stage so there's definitely a, at least a handful of key ones where you really ask the question of like should i flip this and worth like risk killing myself um another large part of this game as well are these things called uh, i don't actually don't know what they're called but I, I call them launch pads um these seem to be in every single level in the game um and i don't know why these became like a core part of the design philosophy but they're there and they um add a lot of timing elements to the game and um these launch pads basically you roll kirby into them kirby gets stuck and launched in them and there's like three different ways you can get kind of launch out of them and one of them is you can tilt the game boy around and that changes the direction that kirby will launch out other ones are it will spin the the direction that kirby will launch out automatically so you have to time the jump and other ones it will just lock the uh the jump direction in one direction but typically something external of the launch pad is going to be um something at the time so like a platform that's moving back and forth you have to jump over on or, or maybe there's a flying enemy that you're trying to dodge things like that so all these things together generally i think do a good job of making the game you know feel like kind of interesting to move Kirby around and they put Kirby in kind of like precarious situations where he can very easily launch himself off a cliff and things like that. There's also some more like puzzly kind of things and most of these kind of get just mapped to the A and the B button so they're like platforms you can kind of uh, pull out that you, if we press the A button the platform will come out and there's like a timer on them so you can't hold down the A button forever kind of thing. Um, there's ones that you can like press it and it'll like move blocks up and down and then when you press it again, it'll like launch Kirby into the air so you can use him as like a jump pad and things like that. It feels almost like Zelda-like in some ways with some of the dungeon elements kind of thing. And the, the temples graphically look a lot like Zelda dungeons too when you're inside like these 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 temples. I think that are largely kind of the, I don't know if it's like a one world or if it's like at the end of each world, there's a kind of like this temple design. I feel like you visit temples multiple times throughout the games kind of thing. Um, but you know, all these things together, I think generally make the game feel diverse enough, even though I think by the end of the game, it doesn't really feel like you've done all that much different, but it feels like a creative use of the mechanics. And in the moment, I think it keeps the game from getting boring, um, at least. Uh, there's also like some of these on-rail shooting segments too as that are um, somewhat interesting because you have to kind of you have like a timer basically so you like get this balloon it makes you fly forward and you have to shoot enemies and then you have to kill enemies that will either give you more air or you have to go and like land yourself on these these pads 
that um, you, you need to jump out of and get more air from. And it's actually like fa fairly precise, actually. I was kind of surprised how challenging they were at times. But yeah, uh, but you know, at, at the end of the day, though, uh, it, it, it's, 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 I think it's a good level of variety. It's just nothing really jumps out as like life changing or anything like that. It's like, like, oh, this is like a really creative way to use this. It just feels like they were kind of, you know, doing as much as they could with what tools they had. And I feel like they kind of touched on everything that they possibly could have done with the technology they had on the platform that they did it with. Now, the one big problem I have with this game are the bosses. The bosses are the weakest link of this game because they are almost identical to each other. So pretty much every boss except for the final boss is this blob and it has an eyeball on top. And when the eyeballs open, you can hurt it. When the eyeballs closed, you can't hurt it. And the dungeon or the uh, boss uh, room design is just a square room with four launch pads in the corners and you get in the launch pad and you jump and like it does take some like finesse to like try to make sure you time it right. You land when the eyes open and then also making sure your, your game way is uh, tilted in a way that Kirby will actually land on that eye and do damage kind of thing. Um, but the bosses all just kind of follow you around the room and that's kind of it. So they just kind of set themselves up to get hit. Um, they'll occasionally when you do damage, they'll kind of like fly around the stage and try to knock you off. But then once they calm down, they just kind of chase you around. So what, what the variety they kind of put in place for this boss de uh, design is in the environment. So it's like some environments have spikes everywhere. Some environments have holes everywhere. Some environments have broken tiles that will break into holes everywhere. And, and I just, you know, I, I, I think I kind of appreciate that, that it's like a different level of, of, of difficulty, but a lot of it, even on the spike stage, a lot of it just feels like, hey, don't fall in the death pit kind of thing. And and so the reality is, is like you have all these different things that look different than usual, but they all kind of amount to the same like uh, threat in a lot of ways. And how you actually fight the boss is just not that different overall. So, you know, there's eight worlds in this game. And so you fight this boss, like I think seven times and it's just by the yeah, it's just not a very good good um, boss design. I think they could have done a lot more um, with with the actual bosses, um, but you know, yeah. But the the last boss is like at least somewhat interesting. If not, you know, it was a little hard to understand exactly what they wanted me to do, just because the game hadn't really trained you up until that point of like fighting a boss in a different way. Um, but generally, I think the last boss was like a pretty solid boss fight, though. But in the end, you know, most of the the game, I think, really comes down to, you know, just, you know, trying to keep out of death pits. That is the core of this game is like, do not let Kirby fall in these holes. And, you know, unlike, you know, a game where you're controlling Kirby directly with the D-pad, here he's just a little unwieldy, which makes it even <laughs> even harder in a lot of ways. But that's where, you know, the fun and challenge of it comes in, right? Um and, and I think, like, a lot of Kirby spinoff titles, it's just, like, you know, just kind of fun, cute, and short. I spent maybe, like, three hours in total, three, four hours in total between it, you know, playing once on a GameCube initially uh, up front, which might have take, make, made the beginning of the game take longer, and then on a Game Boy Color in the second half kind of thing. And there are, like, collectibles in, like, most Kirby games, like the 100% collectibles you can do with the Red Stars. I only got three of them, so <laughs> very small amount out of all the levels in the game. Um, but uh, from what I saw online, it didn't seem like there's a lot of like extra content. If you got a hundred, a hundred percent of the red stars, uh, it seems more or less like a different end screen kind of thing. So personally, I didn't think it was, uh, that, uh, uh, thrilling to go, you know, get all that stuff, but I didn't go and actually do it myself. So I guess I can't speak too definitively on that. Personally, I, I, I've always kind of ignored most of the hundred percent stuff in Kirby games, but there's some Kirby games where it definitely seems like it's a bigger, 
um, deal if you skip that stuff and you don't actually check it out. But this game seems like, eh, you could probably skip it if you if you don't love the game kind of thing. But, um, you know, I think it's a game with a really cool gimmick, especially for the um, time it came out. Uh, now, you know, 2000 is when this came out. You know, there have been motion control consoles, entire, entire consoles dedicated to motion controls, right? And and so I think the reality is is that these games, a game like this probably doesn't have a lot of novelty in the modern day anymore. Um, just, there's a lot of other games that can kind of do this. And that, that whole gimmick of like Kirby rolling around the screen kind of thing, like, like making it feel like Kirby's rolling around, like on your Game Boy or in your Game Boy, I think doesn't really, uh, I don't think it's really conveyed here. Uh, I think if they had some kind of like haptic feedback when like Kirby bounced around or something like that, maybe there'd be some kind of fun thing with that. But with just the motion gyro itself, I don't think it really replicates any kind of feeling that like Kirby is in your Game Boy or on your Game Boy or anything like that. But it's still just a really fun little motion control thing. And it's fun that it's like all self-contained within a Game Boy cartridge kind of thing rather than requiring like an entire console with a, uh, you know, controller that has motion controls or an accessory that has motion controls or something like that. Right. So uh, very cute, though. Like I said, very cute, simple and fun. Um, but yeah, that's kind of uh, Kirby's tilt and tumble. I think the Japanese name's like Kuro Kuro Kirby or something like that. So, um, but yeah, it was fun. I'm glad we played it. I did, uh, like I said, I, I played it on a GameCube that was on stream. So if you want to check that out, feel free to go do that on stream. That was a lot of talking. Let's let's go to the other part of this podcast where I talk um, in between the parts where I talk in the podcast. It's called the Patreon time. Welcome. I beeped. I stopped myself though. Good job, Ben. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, just like uh, 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 usual, um, you know, I haven't made many changes to the Patreon despite the, the channel splitting stuff. So, uh, you know, there hasn't been too much new here. So I can say, though, that, uh, you know, thank you again to Henry Dagger, Jillian, uh, Paul Daniel, and Discreet for supporting me again through most of the year last year for that. I appreciate that. Um, and, uh, per usual, you, if you subscribe, you get, uh, a bonus video. Um, it's $5 a month for, for a bonus video every other week of, uh, uh, the year. Most of the time, more recently, it's been a little more challenging, but I'll get back on, I'll get back on that train, uh, uh, soon here. So, so yeah. Um, but yeah, the last thing we did was a, uh, sing video where I sing as in C I N G. I did not sing music, um, where we talked about various, uh, sing articles, two sing articles I written in the past. The first one, Ooh, that article was not very good. Venture, uh, uh, or games beat venture beat published it. And, uh, yeah, I'm surprised they published it. Cause going back and reading that article, not great. Um, but, uh, the second one I wrote about kind of the, uh, interactions Hyde has with people, um, I think is, is a good article and I'm glad I checked. I didn't realize it when I was starting that video that I was going to read that article. Um, but after how disappointed I was with the writing on the venture beat one, I was like, Oh, so anyways, that's my article commentary video. That's there. If you want to see me read old articles and give my thoughts and opinions on how I did with them and like update some of my thoughts and opinions on various games, you can check that out again, $5 every month for two bonus videos a month, basically about it varies, but every other week, basically. Um, the other thing you do if you give $5 a month is, uh, ask a Patreon question like Jillian did. Two weeks ago, but then I, I gypped her last podcast because I changed the podcast format and I forgot to in, in, integrate the Patreon into it. So, so Jillian asks the question. Oh, but before we get into the Jillian's question, if you want to ask your own question, uh, when you're subscribed on Patreon, I put up a post 
on Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific time that basically says, hey, ask me your Patreon question, and that will be the Patreon question for the week. I also include Jillian's question that she has. She has graciously given us a list of questions for us to go through every week for the most part. So if you do end up asking a question, it does say what her question is going to be. Don't worry about it if you're like, oh, I don't want to take that away from Jillian. Jillian has this every week. So <laughs> so take a moment. Take a moment to ask your question if you're on the Patreon. Um, anyways, Jillian, your question that you asked me. Do you remember, Jillian, this question? Um, what is the weirdest way you've acquired a game? And I, I thought of three different scenarios here. One, I did not actually acquire the game, but I found a game in a weird way. The second one, and I'm a little foggy on exactly what happened. I'm going to try to piece that together as we talk through this because I can't remember. And the third one is about a gift I received for a weird holiday, or at least in my eyes, it was a weird holiday to get a gift like that. So for this Patreon question, I have three answers. One is Little Nemo for the GameCube. I do not own this game. I did not keep this game. I was going into middle school, I believe, at the time. Um, yeah, middle school. Uh, and uh, I was walking up the uh, entrance of the school and on the walkway, there was a GameCube Little Nemo disc there. I was like, that's weird. And then so I went into the school, did my school day and stuff. And I mentioned it to some kid at some point that that disc was there. And then he told me that somebody like now, now, like I'm remembering the details as I'm talking about this. And now I feel bad. Some kid brought it to school for some reason. And I think they took it from him. And so I don't know what this kid was doing, bringing a little Nemo disc, you know, into, to, you know, the middle school or whatever. I mean, I, I lost a copy of Rogue Squadron uh, bringing it to middle school. But anyways, kid brought a copy of Little Nemo. And I guess some guys took it away from him. And so they were throwing the disc around in the front of the school, I guess. And I guess he didn't get the disc back. Um... And in and, and hindsight, like, I seem to recall looking at the disc at some point, and it was just, like, scratched to hell. So, like, chances are it wouldn't have survived anyways. But, yeah. And then so I, when I was leaving the school again, uh, the disc was still there. And the kid that told me they took it from him and, and were, like, messing with him, uh, he was kicking the disc around and, like, sliding on the floor to scratch it up more. So, like, I, I forgot kind of the bullying aspect of that story. So now I feel a little bad. I did not take the disc, though, because I assumed it was a, a lost cause, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I, uh, knew some bullies in school. I thankfully don't think I ever bullied anybody. They bullied me sometimes. Um, but you know, it's school, you know, you don't choose to get to hang out with for the most part. Like you kind of, you kind of connect with anybody, like, especially when you're like, Hey, I'm video game guy. Like, like anyone who plays video games, even if they're rude to you and take your copies of rogue squadron from you, like a jerk. <laughs> So, so yes. Um, so unfortunately, rest in peace, little Nemo. Uh, the other one's the find dif the difference DS game. I have no idea which game this was, but it's one of those games where they show you the two pictures side by side and you got to find the difference. This is what I have a more vague memory of. So this was actually more recent though. Um, the, uh, we were at Disneyland Epcot center and I think we were at the cafeteria area there. And I think we found that. 
Um, I believe, like, I, I may be just kind of thinking about the cafeteria area because my nephew dropped his, like, slushy on my shoe at the time. <laughs> I remember that very vividly. Um, so, so maybe I'm just thinking about that, but I feel like we just found, like, the cartridges, like, sitting on, like, a cafeteria table, and we were there, you know, ate for a while, and we were sitting there, and, like, nobody came back for it. So I think we just ended up taking it home. Um, and yeah, uh, we put it in a car, uh, like a DS, and we played it for a little while. I was like, huh, neat. I did not keep that. I assume my sister still has that. I don't know for sure, though, but I assume that is still with her. But it worked, and it was good. Um, and the last thing is a gift I got, uh, which was Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles. I, I, I don't know if I remember this accurately or not, but I'm pretty sure I got this game for Valentine's Day, of all things, from my dad. And I feel like, you know, look... I've never gotten, like, a Valentine's Day gift from, like, a person, you know, that was like, oh, you know, somebody who actually likes you kind of thing, right? Um, I've never gotten that. So, you know, my whole life, Valentine's Day has very much just been, like, the pity chocolate from your parents, I guess, maybe, if you want to put it that way. I never was, like, sad about it, so it doesn't really matter. Like, I, I, if you know me well, I'm not really interested in relationship stuff very much. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so, like, it was just weird that my dad got me a video game for Valentine's Day to me. I was like, I just was not expecting that. It was not something I was thinking of. I don't remember asking for Crystal Chronicles per se, but I mean, I like Final Fantasy and he knew I liked Final Fantasy. So that's probably why I picked it up. Um, but yeah, just like, it was like a strange holiday to get Crystal Chronicles with kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that, uh, that game quite a bit on Valentine's day and I invited a friend over and we, we Valentine's Crystal Chronicles together. Um, it's very exciting. Anyways, that's it for the Patreon again. Thank you guys so much for supporting me on patreon.com slash one control report is that a is that a real url i don't know um so uh yeah look forward to giving you stuff here in the future i think there should be a video that i need to put out next week for you guys if i recall correctly so i haven't recorded anything yet but i will get something up there on the patreon for you guys on wednesday <laughs> so so yeah um now for the second part of the podcast, uh, like I said, this is typically the news part. If you're an avid listener of One Control Port, you know that. Um, but we are going to instead focus more on just talking about 2023 releases and what I'm looking forward to in the year. Again, some of these we have some news stories connected to, so I'll kind of connect those news stories in as we talk about them a little bit. Um, but yeah, I thought it'd be fun to just go through what games I'm most interested in. Again, I may not necessarily play these games. Um, but I, I, the most likely games I'll play next year at the very least so far based off, you know, we all, it's a long year. It's a whole year. We got a lot of video games that are going to come out between then and now. So there's a good chance things will be announced and released and and we're not including that stuff on this because I don't have a crystal ball. So yeah. Um, the first game I want to talk about, and this is one of the ones that we had a news story uh, based around is that Grim Guardians actually got its release date. If you don't remember what this is, this is the Inti Creates Castlevania style game. So these are the developers of Bloodstained Curse of the Moon 1 and 2, um, also the Gunvolt series and things like that. Um, and so unlike, you know, Curse of the Moon, which has the Bloodstained name, which is a part of, you know, art play and, you know, Bloodstained Richard the Knight franchise, this is actually using the uh, gun 
not not gun gun pixies uh gal gun double piece uh characters i believe or gal gun characters i don't remember which specific one so he uses two characters from that franchise i haven't played gal gun games really so i don't really have any thoughts or feelings on that that much myself personally um but it is a a castlevania style game um and it's aesthetic unlike you know the curse of the moon games it's more nes focused even though it like definitely goes well beyond what an nes could do um, it, it feels more like in the Synth of the Night style kind of thing, but it is still a co-op focused game like Curse of the Moon 2 was. Uh, and uh, basically each character has like a series of sub weapons that they can use. And I think in the latest trailer, they shut off maybe like four or five for each character. And the variety seemed pretty nice. So I was pretty excited to see that the sub weapons looked interesting and easy to like, like, like they looked like they're interesting to use generally overall. And they, they had more impact than just you know, kind of the, I feel like, like the problem with the Symphony of the Night sub weapons, a lot of times they are less, less useful and less interesting than the weapons that Alucard can actually hold most of the time. So the player doesn't really use them as much as they should. I'm sure there's ways to abuse them and things like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so having like an actual interesting set of sub weapons that, that look like it really integrates well into the gameplay, I think is probably the thing I'm most excited for. Um, with this, but it's come out in late February. Um, the biggest thing at the moment is that it is digital only in the U.S. However, in Japan, it is getting a physical, uh, which tells me that probably Limited Run Games has the rights to produce this all wrapped up. And uh, that is, if you don't know the Limited Run Games saga here, I no longer buy games from Limited Run Games, not for a stance or anything like that. I just kind of hate the uh, pre-order period purchasing process along with you know, waiting a year to get a physical copy. And so if the Japanese version has English on it, I'll just import the Japanese version. So, so that's the plan right now is to pick up the switch release physical in Japan. When that comes out at the moment, I still don't have Gunvolt three at the moment physical. So that's something I need to do still as well. Uh, so that's the first game I'm probably most likely to play, uh, that's coming out next year. Bayonetta Origins, Cereza and the Lost Demon. I didn't put a date on this. Whoopsie daisy, binge, g g g g g. But, you know, it's, this just got announced. Uh, chances are, if you care about what this thing is, you already know what the release date is because they talked about it. I think it was like April, maybe. I don't know for sure, though. <laughs> but this is that Bayonetta spinoff game that has, like, the pet, uh, kind of thing that, that Bayonetta has that walks around. But it's not, like... It doesn't look like Bayonetta, really. It's more like storybook aesthetic kind of thing. And it, it doesn't focus on kind of that um, combat style that I like to call, like, I, I feel like there's always some variation on the words I use for this, but like sparks over weight or something like that, where, um, you know, uh, the game is more about flashy moves that combo into each other by and, and in doing so usually means that like enemies don't get nearly as much impact on them which makes the root the move seal more like light taps a lot of times versus like these heavy hits which you know i think people like and you know i think the, there are interpretations that the hits aren't necessarily like light hits but to me because the enemy doesn't really react to a lot of those hits at least in a devastating way they often feel like just little like Almost like Fist of the North Star. Like, you ever watch that where Kenshiro, like, pokes people? And he's like, and, like, the guy's just standing there, like, oh, scared and stuff like that. And, like, nothing's physically happening to him. And then they're like, oh, what happened to me? And then they explode kind of thing. I feel like that's Platinum Games' combat systems. (laughs) It feels like that to me, which is, you know, satisfying in its own way. I just personally never been that big into it. So the fact that this game doesn't really seem based around that combat system is exciting for me as well. Because that's the thing is, like, I feel like every Platinum video game more or less looks the same. (laughs) So I'm happy. I'm happy when it looks different from a, a gameplay perspective. Perspective kind of thing. So, 
Um, but yeah, I'm excited for that. I d- don't know for sure if I'll play that, but it is on my list of eventually. I'll play Bayonetta Origins before I'll ever play Bayonetta 1, 2, or 3. I will say that, probably. This next game is one I actually just find out, found out about. Apparently it was announced three months ago, and I completely missed it. It's called uh, Buccaneer, and this is a success game that's coming out on PS4 and Switch. And it almost looks like a mobile game in a lot of ways, which might be why I missed it before, because maybe I just skipped over it thinking it was something else. But um, yeah, this is a, a boat combat game that feels almost like Metal Slug to me in some ways, where it's like these very realistic looking boats in a lot of ways. Um, but then they have just like ridiculous stuff put on. Like one of the boats is just like has two arms that just like punch other boats and things like that. Um, but all these boats are piloted by... Well, the pilot is like an anime character or something like that. So they're all a bunch of girls or whatever. And there's like, there's, uh, some, the enemy pirates are guys as, as well. I don't know if any playable guys are in the game, but it seems like there's girls for the playable characters, guys for the enemy pirates. Uh, there's, actually, there's a couple of enemy pirates that look like girls as well. I don't know. Whatever. You're mostly playing as girls because it's, you know, this kind of this space, I think, prioritizes, you know, uh, women characters over, over male ones often. Um Anyways, but uh, but the actual like crewmates on your ship are a bunch of cats. So like a cats in your like crew quarters that are all like you know sitting around and doing whatever. And then when you're fighting, all their cat faces are like popped up along the like component they're pilot or like controlling and things like that. So it looks like a really cute, fun game, and I like the pun in the name, which is Buccaneer. And then like at the end, end it's like well, like the end of the trailer, they have like a cat meow and they say the name is Buccaneer something like that so it looks pretty cute um uh, unfortunately i don't think it's been um announced for the west at all yet i would assume it will get localized but there are occasionally those few titles that fall through the cracks so maybe this will be one of them um but it got announced for april 20th in japan but uh i did not see any kind of u.s release date stuff yet at this point i may have missed that again i missed this game for three months so if you have seen otherwise for that game let me know but i don't believe it's been announced for localization yet the next game I'm probably most interested in looking at is Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. You know, I don't like Breath of the Wild very much, so this being essentially, you know, called Breath of the Wild 2 for a very long time uh, does not exactly paint the most confidence in me, personally, um, uh, of what this game will be. However, with Sonic Frontiers, I really started to think a lot about Breath of the Wild, and I think Sonic Frontiers, in a lot of ways, was a very enlightening moment for me about Breath of the Wild, of what Breath of the Wild did wrong for me. and um. I am interested in seeing what direction they take that Breath of the Wild formula. Because I feel like there's two obvious ways that they might end up going. And, you know, obviously, I want Nintendo to surprise me, and hopefully they can do whatever they need to do to make a game work well for me. But um, I, I really feel like there's kind of like two points that you can go with Breath of the Wild 2. One is, you know, scale things back, focus more on the Zelda aspects of the game, but then in the very Sonic Frontiers way, adapt open world elements to the Zelda elements. So make a smaller world that focuses more on better reward structures, better puzzle design, um, you know, maybe more more uh, progressive puzzle design in some ways and things like that too. Uh, rather than just everything being solvable from the start. So like nothing can necessarily be like as interesting as you'd want it to be because they have to always plan on like every puzzle being your first puzzle potentially kind of thing. Um, so I want them to either go that way or I want them to abandon ship for Zelda basically and just really focus on, um, you know, utilizing open world structures that work better, you know, 
stat progression, more RPG elements, things like that. I would not consider Zelda an RPG franchise, but I think part of the reason why Breath of the Wild 1 did not work for me is because there was not a lot to build on. You kind of can level up your stamina, and I feel like that's the main source of progression in that game in some ways. And I feel like that I kind of want them to just move further away from Zelda in that regard and then focus on like a almost like Skyrim stat building. I never played Skyrim, but you know, that kind of Elder Scrolls stat building stuff. And or or also, you know, integrating the dungeon design into more overworld elements and just kind of scrapping the dungeons, I think. I think that is my thought overall of like they can either do one of the two ways and that's you know the best way they're going to um be successful with the next Zelda game. Personally I think if Breath of the Wild 1 had just come out, I probably would point to the like more like, hey, push this game to be more of like a traditional open world game to be more successful kind of thing. I think I would have pushed that way and said that's probably the better way going forward. But I feel like, I don't know. I don't know how true this is. I've had a few conversations with friends about this, but I feel like open world design, some people are getting fatigued by open world design. And I've heard this mentioned on podcasts and then also by friends, but I don't know how widely regarded that fatigue is right like are the people who are saying they're fatigued by open world design the majority um because if that's the case i think the other direction might be a better approach so i don't it doesn't matter either way they're not going to listen to me uh, because i'm not a game designer so i'm an idiot and why would you listen to me about your video game design um but, um, but i i am interested to see which direction they would go kind of thing right so even though i'm maybe not excited for zelda tears of the kingdom i'm i am interested in seeing that game and i think i will end up playing it um, even if it's not at release day, I think I will try to at least play it, you know, within a reasonable time frame of this year um, for that. The next game is Final Fantasy 16. 16? Yeah, Final Fantasy 16. Final Fantasy 16 is probably going to be the breaking point for me for a PlayStation 5. You know, I've been talking so long about like, I don't know when to get a PS5 or Xbox Series X, blah, 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 Because like, I don't know, like I, graphics don't matter that much to me. So like, like Sonic... Frontiers like perfectly fine on a PS4 for me personally. Um, but anyway, so yeah, uh, the, um, you was 16. Uh, you know, I think, I think the thing, I think the reason why I'm interested in 16 is because, you know, historically Final Fantasy has been very successful at differentiating each of its releases. So even though, you know, from the times we've discussed Final Fantasy 16 in the past, you know, we, I have not been very enthusiastic about it. Um, the Final Fantasy franchise has a history of making interesting games, no matter how enthusiastic I am or am not before release. 15, I think, is an interesting video game, despite the problems I have with it. And I think the DLC, you know, definitely was was a little more satisfying to me personally. But I, d- I don't regret regret playing 15, even if I didn't play the, like the DLC kind of thing, I feel like. And, and I think 16 for me is just, you know, another step on that train. I think it's a franchise that embodies a lot of what I care about in video games in a lot of ways. And, and the fact that each of these releases are set in different worlds and things like that has always been a big part of that for me. So the fact that 16 is a new world, even if it's not a world I'm like particularly excited for, that alone, I think, is enough to draw me into, into checking that game out. And then also the fact that it's like focusing more on summons in a, in a way that I feel like it hasn't really been the focus of uh, Final Fantasy games in more recent years. Um, summons have been kind of like technical like showcases and like, hey, look at these big graphics guys we have. Look at Titan. He's so huge. I feel like that's been like kind of the role of summons for a very long time in Final Fantasy. 
and to try to de- like more actively integrate them into the story and the like the characters um, in a more modern game, I think is um or in the gameplay rather not characters the gameplay I think in a more modern way um in a more modern game is, is going to be somewhat important for this. Um, I say that, but I like the more and more I think about it, the more I'm more like, yeah, summons play a role in other games, but I don't know. I don't know. Like 13 had summons that were kind of important. Like, I don't remember how, I don't remember 13 story very well, to be honest with you. So the problem is, is that like Final Fantasy just has not had many mainline releases in the last decade. <laughs> so any, any, anything that's a new mainline Final Fantasy that doesn't like involve the world of Aori or Aorzea or the Final Fantasy 13 world is like gonna be novel enough as is kind of thing. And even like Eorzea and 14, like it's kind of based on Final Fantasy 11 in a lot of ways. So like it's not that distinct. So so I'm just excited that we're doing something different. It's been years. Like the 13 and verses were announced in like what 2006, 2005. It's been forever. I will take whatever I can get at this point when it comes to Final Fantasy. Um, and then just some other Square Enix things here as well that I, I don't think I will play these per se, but there's Final Fantasy VII Rebirth coming out this year, assuming it doesn't get delayed. Um, I think I... Final Fantasy VII, re, like the remake series, I think is kind of spin-off-y in my eyes in a lot of ways. So um, I think it's kind of in that category of like Lightning Returns, and until I beat Lightning Returns, I probably won't beat won't play Final Fantasy VII Remake kind of thing. I think Lightning Returns to me is more important than Final Fantasy VII Remake at this moment, at least, from a story perspective at the very least. But I know Final Fantasy VII is doing stuff with the story in those games to set them apart so it's not just like a you know a Final Fantasy VII retelling entirely. It's a, it's, it's a new thing that's a part of that timeline kind of thing. There's also Forspoken from Square Enix as well. Um, I This is a game that I think looks cool and looks good in a lot of ways, but like nothing about it jumps out at me as a game I want to play per se. And I think that's going to keep me from actually checking it out. Um, so I think that actually is earlier in the year maybe as well. I, don't, I didn't write down the date for that one here, but um, yeah, I think it's a nice looking game in a lot of ways. I'll be curious to see how people feel about it. People seem to really get upset about that more recent like trailer where she said like, I'm... I'm fighting dragons and my bracelet's talking to me. What the hell's happening or something like that, which to me just sounds like any video game line. That's like, Hey, we're, we're establishing you're in a different world kind of thing. Like you're a fish out of water isekai kind of thing. So like, I don't really get why people were so upset about that, but you know, enough people were upset about it that probably there was something that triggered people out of that situation. So something in there was, was too tacky for people. I think so. I, I watched it before and I'm just like, this trailer seems like the most fine trailer I've seen. I don't know. It, it like I don't really I think most video game dialogue in trailer form sounds stupid to be honest with you. It's like why I don't care about story trailers for RPGs most of the time. It's like none of this makes any sense. None of it matters in the context of what you're looking at at the moment most of the time. And yeah, yeah, I mean franchise fans and things like that for like the Xeno franchise they get excited. They're like, "Oh, what does this mean? Does this mean?" So let me not poop on it too hard right i was gonna say the s word that i feel like poop is even worse of a word to use in some ways let me not give xeno fans too hard of a time um because or really any story heavy fans with that stuff but like one of the kyle bossman did a video about the xenoblade chronicles 3 like 20 minute direct that came out and you know (laughs) 
I, I thought there was like a line in there that I thought was pretty funny and like very much sums up my feeling about game trail or game story game trailers is like there's a scene where it like shows Mio being like happy the the cat girl from Xenoblade Chronicles 3 and then a scene where it shows Mio being sad and so he just says like oh you'll get she's they're like oh look at this cat she's happy she's sad you'll get to see both sides of the cat girl in this game. <laughs> I just, I don't know that, that kind of thing just made me laugh for some reason. I'm, I'm sure I got it wrong, but like, just like, that's how story trailers for, feel to me. It's like, Hey, guess what? There's going to be sadness. There's going to be happiness. Stories are going to happen in this video game. Please get excited. <laughs> I really need a unique, unique, unique setting for me to ever care about story in your pre-release coverage, honestly. So, um, for that. So anyways, Kind of a side note here, actually. This is part of the news stories that got kind of gutted for this section, but I think it's relevant in this situation. Square Enix had this, like, really weird... Or, like, Silicon Era ran this article, actually, that was like, Square Enix might do something new for Dragon Quest X. Which, I clicked on it because I was like, okay, uh, sure, I'll see what they're, they're talking about. But, like... That title does not seem very representative of what the article's talking about in a lot of ways, and it feels like a burying of the the, the story in a lot of ways, because in this article, like, to my understanding, Scranks is basically saying, like, hey, 2022, we launched a ton of video games, which they did. You should go look at their release calendar for 2022. My friend brought it up recently. He's like, look how much stuff they put out. And it's a ridiculous number of games, ridiculous number of live service games that also failed and died in a year. But I mean, that's the Square Enix way. Though I feel like none of the live service games launched in the last year stuck. Um, so I think a lot of those were, were, were dead in the water. But anyways, you know, outside of the games that we already talked about, though, it seems like they're kind of saying like, hey, we're not going to have a lot of unannounced stuff getting announced in 2023. So, like, if you're not into what's going on already, which, you know, hey, two big Final Fantasy games, that's pretty big already. Forspoken is, you know, Final Fantasy 15 development team, right? Working on that, which is, you know, probably gonna be a big AAA, you know, action adventure thing as well, right? Those are pretty big video games, so I'm not, like, downplaying those. But it sounds like, other than that, and, like, the Dragon Quest things that have been announced with, like, the Dragon Quest remakes and things like that, it's going to be a pretty quiet year for Square Enix next year from an announcement standpoint. Again, lots of big games coming out from them, though. Um, and so, like, the, the whole context was like, oh, but Dragon Quest X might get, like, some extra love put into the game development of it because, you know, they're going to kind of roll back and focus a little more on their current lineup this year kind of thing. So, now that I think about it, Dragon Quest Infinity Strash should be coming out this year as well. I am excited for that. I might check that one out, but I don't think there's a date for that yet at the moment. So... Uh, and then, like, a quick, 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 tiny, tiny bonus story within a bonus story. Um, there, The Pixel remasters we talked about last week, those were officially announced. They were put on pre-order, not last week, two weeks ago at this point, because last week was the uh, Game of the Year stuff. But um, there was a uh, pre-order page that went up, and they sold out almost immediately. Then I think they put the pre-order page back up, and then they sold out almost immediately. I think the physicals might be only purchasable through the Square Enix store. So I'm not sure what the plan is for that. Um, I personally don't plan on picking those things up, but I figured I would give you an update because we talked about it. And the last thing for 2023 that I'm aware of that we should be thinking about as video games we'll be talking about going in the future here on the podcast, that's going to be the Xenoblade Chronicles 3 downloadable content. Now, I'm going to try to be a little conservative on what I say about this, but what I expect, because I don't want to spoil people who, you know, haven't gotten too deep into that game. But, but, but basically, Dynamite Chronicles 3 kind of has, like, a pretty deep history to, like, its timeline and its world, despite the fact that it is kind of, like, tied into Xenoblade Chronicles 1 and 2 kind of thing. There's a pretty chunky period of time 
between the stuff that happens in Xenoblade Chronicles 1 and 2 and what's happening in Xenoblade Chronicles 3, basically. And um, so there's like a period in between there where there's like there's this group of people who are like building a society kind of thing in, in a lot of ways. And uh, that is like touched on in the story. And they actually show you like statues of these people at some point in the game and you can see them all um and i don't know if they're necessarily all references to past characters and past games or not um some of them are but you know it's it's hard to say if they're like actually them or people just look like them or look similar to them kind of thing um but it seems like those characters were detailed in a way that it probably seems pretty likely that those characters are going to be central figures of something in the future i could be wrong they don't just look like you know characters we made up all of a sudden unless they're all referencing characters and that was the whole thing of like trying to tweak them enough so like square enix doesn't sue us over like this guy looking too much like a fei fong wong or something like that right (laughs) but um but yeah so or maybe they're like you know the the, the legends go on and and their uh, appearance change and that kind of thing as well if you're talking about other characters that maybe don't look like them directly um, but my expectation that it's probably going to be surrounded around those characters. This is all speculation at this point for me. And so I am interested in seeing like what that thing does. Um, I say I mostly focus on the setting and stuff because the reality is, is that like, I don't really know what they can do mechanically um, at this point with Xenoblade Chronicles 3 with the current systems in place to um, make that game interesting at this point. I'm not saying they can't do it. Xenoblade Chronicles 2, Torn of the Golden Country, did a great job of creating, you know, taking the systems in Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and refining them and adapting them into a new playstyle in a lot of ways. Um, but it was very heavily based within that foundation. And, you know, personally, I like the foundation that Xenoblade Chronicles 2 combat system is, despite its issues kind of thing, where I do not like the foundation of Xenoblade Chronicles 3's combat system. So if it is those, like, slight tweaks and things like that, you know, I really hope the bigger thing would be the Ouroboros level or aspect of the combat with like changing into the, the giant guys. I think that's the big thing I'd want changed or the big thing I would expect within expectations expect to be changed. I don't think they're going to rework the entire combat system. I'm a little worried that we're going to be kind of stuck with the Xenoblade Chronicles 2 like basis combat system. The basis of, of the combat system being Xenoblade Chronicles 2 going forward. Something I don't necessarily like very like. I don't like that they're doing that. Not that I don't like the Xenoblade Chronicles 2 combat system. I don't like I don't like that approach if that's going to be the case. But, you know, again, I, I'm not... We've had one video game since Xenoblade Chronicles 2, right? So, like, don't get hasty, Ben. You're, you're going to be, like, 40 by the time the next Xenoblade game comes out. And we'll be able to figure out what's going on there if you're interested. But... <laughs> no, that's, that's an exaggeration. I think Xenoblade Chronicles, whatever, or next Xeno game or whatever will come out, you know, in a reasonable time frame. There's... There's the demand and budget to do it, I think, at this point, honestly. So, um, But the reality is, is that like I, I don't really know what they can do with combat-wise. But setting-wise, I think that's probably the best like lead I feel like we have on that. Am I interested in that story? I don't know. I don't think I care, <laughs> personally. Um, but I think the characters would be the big thing for me. Like, seeing if these characters are characters that have existed in the past. And, you know, or are these all new characters, things like that. And, and how 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 those characters fit in that world because these these characters were not really detailed in like a ton of depth from what I saw in the game. Um, they're kind of talked about and they're they're mentioned off and on um, and they're kind of looked at as like, you know, kind of like the founding fathers of America in some ways kind of thing. 
Um, but they never really get in like to a lot of details, like who these characters were. So I, I think I am interested in learning about those characters a little bit, but like generally, I don't know. I feel like I'm being a hypocrite right now since I just like, you know, talked about like how trailers with, with story cutscene stuff is pointless to me. And then I'm like, Oh, but what, let's talk about the speculation of Xenoblade Chronicles 3 DLC. <laughs> but I still stand by. If you show me a bunch of story stuff, other than just like the setting it's going to be. in, I do not care about, you know, who's saying what in a, in a trailer. So, or who's crying. <laughs> so, so anyways, Xenoblade Chronicles DLC. There we go. That's it. And that's it. That's probably all I'm looking at right now for 2023. That's, again, not saying anything won't come up. Maybe there'll be another Final Fantasy Battle Royale game that I'll be ready and able to play. Um, <laughs> so we'll see about that. But, yeah, thanks for coming for this uh, first podcast of the year. Um, and I hope you had a great holiday season and everything. I probably should have said that at the beginning of the podcast. Um, but, yeah, um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to say right now. Uh, the big thing I guess right now to say is there's, there's a couple different changes that are being made to the stream. Um, one is that we're going to be starting up Final Fantasy Chocobo Tales, uh, Final Fantasy Fables Chocobo Tales coming up next week. Um, which I apparently got a sequel. I had no idea. Japan only sequel. Um, but anyways, that's not what we're playing. We're playing the U S release cause I never played it. It came out like 2007, I think. And, um, so we're going to be playing that, but going forward, the streams are going to be a bit more flexible. We might play other things during streams, even when like, you know, we have a main game that we're kind of doing. Um, and then also I'm moving the stream time up by an hour. So it's going to be 6 p.m. Pacific time rather than 7 p.m. With the goal of making it a little easier for people on the East Coast to um, tune in if they want to tune in for at least part of this, the stream. Um, and then also, uh, we'll probably wrap up around nine, which gives us an extra 30 minutes, which I think will make us uh, a little more flexible when it comes to trying other things out. If we can play like two hours of whatever the main game is, you know, I think we large, I think that's a good amount of progress in a main game. And then if we distract ourselves for like another hour on something else, you know, then I think that's fine too. I'm not saying we'll distract ourselves every single week and we might take breaks from games. We might walk away from them for a bit, things like that. Um, I'm definitely open to hearing like if there's anything you guys want me to look at while we're on stream, let me know though. Ideally it'd probably be like while we're streaming, you'll let me know um, what you're interested in. Although feel free to message me otherwise. But um, uh, at the moment, I think that, like for next week, I think the plan will be to like maybe play some Soma bringer first and foremost, or maybe in the middle of the stream, we'll switch over to Soma bringer brief briefly just to talk a little bit about that experience that I've been having with that game. Um, and, and so you guys can see a little bit of that as well. So anyways, that's it for this week. Thanks for coming. OneControlBoard.com is the website. As I mentioned earlier, there are now three YouTube channels, the PCFX YouTube channel, this one that you're on right now with one control board plus if you're on the YouTube at least. And that's all gaming commentary focused stuff. So me rambling into this microphone without a script in front of me. Um, and then the scripted content, which the scripted content channel, the main channel is going to be quiet for a little while, I will say, as I, you know, kind of figure out if the Babylon's Fall video is going to be the first thing we publish. Maybe I'll work on something else and publish that. Maybe I'll work on a PCFX video and we'll focus on that instead. And that's going to go to the PCFX channel instead. So that won't go on the main channel, but it'll probably be a scripted video for PCFX. So it would go up on the PCFX channel if I did that. So it's kind of up in the air at the moment, but the Babylon's Fall video is the thing that's actually in production and moving, but it's just going to take some time. It's a very long script which means a very long video editing process so anyways thank you guys again so much please enjoy your 2023 and i hope that you guys will continue to support me throughout the year bye